0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the FPA podcast. Today, we're going to talk about succession planning and the pathway to making sure that your succession planning and and business transitions are successful. Developing and implementing a business succession plan is really a key part of your business planning process. Yet only 1 in 10 practices actually have an effective plan in place for how they're going to grow their business and transition it to the next generation or, or look to sell it. Today's podcast, we're going to talk to a very successful practitioner, Um, who's been thinking about this for a number of years and has started to successfully transition his his business from the first generation of owners through to the second generation. They're even starting to think about the third generation. So we're going to talk about some key elements around business succession planning, including how important planning is, what's a a good succession planning model look like, and, and what are some of the key lessons that have been learned through this succession planning process. So I'm really excited to introduce David Andrews from Capital Partners in Perth to talk about succession planning. Hi, David, welcome to the FPA podcast. And I'm really excited today because I met you five years ago or so when you applied for the FPA practice of the year awards and and we were really blown away by your business and, and what you were doing with your business. And then you came back a few years later for the awards again and you didn't turn up it was the next generation of your business that turned up and that blew us away even more that you you brought in some amazing people into your business to to keep it going and to bring in that next generation and and so what we wanted to talk about today was succession planning and and how you're doing it in in your business um but to start off can you tell us a bit about yourself and and the business and how things are going yeah sure well things are going great thanks ben um so our business is 23
1: years young. Um, we're a touch over 40 people, um, about a billion and a half of assets under management. And um, we work with successful families. And um, our objective is to help those successful families in a very methodical, systematic way, achieve true prosperity, whatever that means to them. Um, so... so for us, we consider our primary competitive advantage to be our people. Um, yes, the technical aspect of what we do is, is very, very important, um, but it's the capacity to have deeper conversations with clients that really bring out the, not only the, the richness of the relationship that we have with them, but I think the richness of the plan. And um, so, so to be on a pathway and we were thinking about this the other day, Ben, just in terms of the success of our clients. We're very careful about client selection. We're very deliberate about that. So we want to only work with clients where we believe we can help them be truly successful by that measure, prosperity. And we were thinking about it, and whilst we haven't got a empirical evidence of this, we, we believe that in the high 90% of our clients are on track to achieve all of their goals which
0: is pretty cool you know we are in the service of something that's much bigger than ourselves
1: and it's a really nice place to be.
0: Yeah absolutely and I I want to come back to finding the right people and and bringing the right people on but um, you said you've been going for 23 years at some point you must have Twigged that this business was going really successfully and and it was probably an ongoing, ongoing entity that you needed to think about. I may not be here for ever. And what are we going to do with this really successful business, which is doing amazing things for our clients? How did you start to think about that? What kind of conversations went on within the business?
1: Yeah, yeah. So to, to go back a step, I've thought about this in terms of what happens in the broader lives of founding partners and Dan Sullivan the entrepreneur coach talks about a concept he called the four freedoms um, and I think all of us who go into business really deeply want this which is the freedom of time the freedom of time the freedom of money the freedom of relationships and the freedom of purpose so if you just think about that intro I gave you know I've got freedom of relationships because we're really careful about that the selection of clients you know if they're if they're going to be difficult I don't care how much money they've got, we're we're not going to do that. Um, I've got freedom of purpose. Um, Freedom of money should come to any business that does well. You know, the the founders and and principals should do well. But I think all of us get to a stage of our career where we think, wow, I've built this amazing business and um, it's pretty cool and we're doing great work for people, but I don't have freedom of time. And um, I've only got X number of Good summers left. I, I really need to think about that. And um, I think, in the broader context of, of our profession, there are probably four types of two 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 big groups. So there are the the corporatized firms, um, and the corporatized firms are being set up either for scale and sale, or they're being set up for generational continuity. Then you've got the lifestyle businesses. Um and they're being set up for sale. It has to be sale. And it's either, but it's either going to be an internal sale or an external sale. All right. So I, I took a really simple view of this. Um, lots of these clients have become friends. Lots of these clients are very dear to me. They've helped me build a great life and Robin, and they've helped my kids live good lives, and they've helped us build a great business and a great team. I don't feel that I have a right to sell them. Now, now I'm, that's not a judgment that I will put on anybody else on this. On listening to the your podcast, that's just me. So I've been really driven from a quite a deep place to provide this generational con- continuity. I'm also um, clear-eyed about the fact that when I'm not here, people might make a different decision. That's okay. On my watch, I did what I thought was right and on their watch they they will do what they think is right it's a bit like a family estate plan trying to control things from the grave it doesn't work so yeah I think that the four freedoms is really the big trigger and that for us happened with Chris Um, this is an interesting idea Um, right from the very beginning so going back to 2003 when partners joined the business I always ask them every year for a rolling five-year commitment so I would say to them at our annual planning conference meeting, they'd say, do I have you for five years? And I would say, yes. And they'd say, yes, every year. And they'd say, why do you keep asking me that question? And I'd say, because I need to know. I need, because I need five years. I know I need five years to plan whatever. Because one day you're going to say no. One day you're yep. going to say no. And one day Chris King, one of my, my co founder in fact, said no. He said, no, I, I need to do some different stuff. Yep. So that really became the trigger. And uh, we set out on a path to create a succession program.
0: And again, I want to come back to how you started to bring more people into the business and start to think about who who the right people were to bring into this succession plan. But are you able to share briefly with us what that succession plan looks like and how it's operating? Yeah, totally. When you think about succession, when we think about succession,
1: there's succession of roles which includes client responsibilities. Yeah, There's succession of leadership capability and there's succession of capital. And I think just about everyone focuses on succession of capital. Yep. And, and actually you can't. You've got to be, you've got, it's a three-legged stool and you really need to be thinking about succession of capital, succession of leadership and succession of roles because if any one of those legs is done poorly, you get a bad result. So so there's a bunch of stuff happening in this business. Um, We we have implemented um, an operating system. It's called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's it's broadly available, um, which means that most of day-to-day operations of the business have nothing to do with me anymore. I still get asked my opinion, um, but Charmaine Napret, who you've met, runs business day-to-day. Catherine Creasy, who you've met, um, runs Advice Quality. Um, James McLeod, who uh, you may not have met, but he's one of our senior principals. He he runs our business development and relationships and looks after all of the advisors. Um, Michael Matthews, who's one of my, uh, Generation One, looks after the investment committee. So we've got a very decentralised but a highly accountable system so that Charmaine as the COO knows what's going on. We're very clear on our priorities. So, so we are, you, you, you know, I'm really leaning into this because, because I want to lean out. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't just float through, you can't drift and then expect it to go well. You've got to be really clear and decisive and take strong action. So, so there's those three things going on. Let me talk about succession of capital though, because I think that's probably the bit that, a lot of people find the most interesting chris wanted to be out by a certain date and and i think that's the most important thing is having a really crystal clear plan vision of how you want it to go yep. um, and have a sense of purpose around that um so so chris knew that he wanted to be out by i think it was the 30th of june 2021 so we just said okay let's start with 10 percent. so he sold down 10 percent to 7 people so so 1.5% each, um, it was actually a pretty simple transaction in the end. Um, we got funding, balance sheet funding from Macquarie Bank and NAB and others do similar things. And um, we structured a valuation based on what would happen if we sold this this business on the open market? What would the multiple be? And we said, mm-hmm. okay, it's going to be between X and Y was our belief. And we had good reason to think that. Yep. And we said, okay, well, that's full valuation because there's passing of control. But, but when you're coming in as a minority shareholder, you shouldn't have to pay those sort of multiples. So we, we took the lower end of that multiple band and then discounted it by 25% so that we felt that people coming in were getting a fair valuation. Now, I would hazard to say that all of the incoming shareholders thought that they were probably paying a bit too much and chris was thinking gee i wish i could have got a bit more because you know that would have made a difference now that i think most people understand in the context context of a, of a transaction that that's probably the right transaction yeah a bit like when you buy a house you wish you got it a bit cheaper and the, the vendor wishes they'd got a bit more it was probably the right price absolutely um, so so the process behind that though was it took 2 years so we we took all of our team, all of the people who'd been selected for this, and there were seven, um, (laughs) you're you're probably going to ask me a question later on, what would I do differently? If I had a choice, I wouldn't do seven people, right? That was a big, big transaction, and a lot of different thinking and thinking styles and a lot of different conversations that had to be had. But we did take the team off site for a day and we were very, very open with them about how the business works and what the moving parts are and all the rest of it. And we tried to crystallise our day's work down into one word and we ended up with two words. And, and their reflection on what we had shared with them, the two words that we we identified were complexity and ambiguity. And that is the life of a business owner, right? Right. So anyone listening to this podcast that's running a business will say, you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of complexity and there's no right answer. So you just have to make the right decision you can in the moment with the information that you've got. Um, But we went through a very formal process. I wrote a document called Pathway to Partnership, and it's very detailed in terms of what it talks about um, and our expectations. So it talks about... um, the principles becoming the stewards and the guardians of our guiding principles and our values, and that I, as founder, will hold them to a much higher standard than anyone else around those guiding principles and values. So number one guiding principle is we do the right thing by our clients always. Yep. So, so they are on notice that they are being held to the highest possible standard around those things. Well One thing we came to terms with very early, Ben, and I think this is really critical, is that in our business, the advisors are not the rock stars. They are not the rock stars. Mm-hmm. They are the revenue producers, and the admiration we have for them is enormous because it's not hard, it's not easy work at the level that these people do it. But Charmaine is also a rock star in operations. Yep. And if, we had a, if we had a head of investments who was not revenue generating, for example if they were really, really good, we would have the same level of respect for them. Yep. Um, so we had to negotiate through these conversations around, oh, well, only revenue producers should be owners of yeah. the business. So exactly. well, it ain't going to be much of a business if the operations unit is run by the revenue producers, let
0: me tell you. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, you know, funnily well, enough, at the FPA, um, I'm the only non-revenue generating person in the organisation. Um, so I, I have these thoughts often.
1: Yeah, well, you know, non-revenue producers create the infrastructure that makes the work of the revenue producers ideally effortless. But that's yeah. that's that's a that's a dream. Um, but but if we can smooth the way and remove roadblocks for our revenue producers and our client services, then that's hugely valuable. So so we've got a very very interesting model around respecting all of the roles that contribute to the success of a client relationship. And um, so just as, a, just as a post note to that Ben, um, we subsequently transacted on the remainder of Chris's equity. So that group plus one, um, Damon Sugden came into the group last year. We have so we now have eight generation uh, two principals and they collectively own about 40% of the business now.
0: Okay, you took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say you started with seven at one point five percent. How how has that how has that evolved? So that's that's um, generation two, and you've obviously been you, you brought you said you brought Damon on. Um, how did you go about thinking about okay, we're now in this process where we're going to start transitioning the the ownership of the business to a, a new generation. We're going to slowly sell our equity down. How are we going to choose the right people to bring in? How are we going to choose the right seven to start with? You've now brought an eighth in. How have you thought about that process?
1: So this is probably more of an issue for um, lifestyle businesses that are having an internal transfer Mm -hmm. um, because the people you choose need to be able to actually run the business as well as be good good advisors or good operational people. Yep. one of the one of the hardest pieces of work that we've had to do is role definition. Um, and with our eight people coming in, they have a role as a shareholder, which in the ideal does not actually come into these walls in, in the office. You know their shareholding is a private matter. So we're really disciplined around our hats. Similarly, you know, we're, we're talent-based, so I want the West best people, the right people in the right seats doing the right work for the right outcome. Now that we've brought in an executive leadership team, there's a broader um, spread of responsibilities there. We've also got an operations team where, you know, there's a lot of really important problem-solving that happens in that operations team. Um, so, so people find their place, but they don't necessarily have a say Day to day in the business, they do as you know. If an advisor says, "Look, I think there's a better way to do this." Of course, we're going to listen to that. Mm. But if it, if it's prefaced with "I'm a shareholder
0: and I have this view," yeah. should we then? Then that's just not a conversation we're going to have. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned before one of your key learnings was you may not have started with seven, um, and that that does seem like a lot of moving moving chips. Is there anything else you might have done differently if you had your time again?
1: There were some little things that didn't go so well. Um, one of the things I learned was that the different decision-making styles um, can make life really tricky. And that's where if you've got one or two, it would be much easier. So I would have a lot more compassion for the fact that this is so new to the people coming in. Some are overconfident. Some are really actually quite anxious about it. Mm. You know, the some total of... of what people have written out checks for a million dollars to buy a, a share of the business—that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I learned was I'm not just dealing with the incoming principals; I'm actually dealing with the partner at home as well. That blindsided me because I was getting all these questions from people, and I was thinking, "Wow, they're not questions that you normally ask. Where where's this coming from?" And um, I did ultimately offer to sit down with people's partners if they would like me to. And ultimately, that wasn't necessary. But I think the fact that that offer was available Mm. was useful. I think the biggest thing is clear communication. I I made a note earlier, um, and this really was a very deep motivator for me. Ben, I've had so many conversations with young people who are coming through being uh, in our recruitment process where they say, yeah, yeah. I was walking, working for this lifestyle practice, you know, my words, but I was working for this smaller practice and, you know, when I was employed, I was promised the opportunity to become a business owner. And every now and then I'd ask, you know, is this a possibility? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. Or or worse, you know, they just say, oh, yeah, by the time it actually became an issue, the business owner had changed their mind. Yeah. So I'd signed up to a promise, yeah. inverted commas, and it never came to fruition. And I was really crystal clear that I wasn't going to do that. I'm a handshake person. So when I say something's going to happen, I, I do my best to make it happen. And if it has to change, I'm very, very, very careful about making sure I get very, very clear and, and reasonable reasons why it can't happen in the way that I expected it, that it might. Yep. So we were very deliberate about the way we went about it we took a lot of time to think about it um, we're pretty much self-taught but you know we, we we had the benefit we're members of a an international group i think you're aware um group called gaia and it's just a group of 22 firms from around the world and we we share ideas and there's two firms in the united states that have done this all before yeah so i was able to get on the on a call to the u.s to two different firms and say how did you do this like yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the um, playbook? So we just lifted up their playbook, actually, from, from valuation through to transaction through to everything. Um, we, because it's balance sheet funded, um, we decided very early on, there's a firm in, um, in California that sought us this, to say don't, don't allow an incoming shareholder to borrow all of the money against your balance sheet because there's just no skin in the game for them. Yes, they're responsible for repaying it. Yep. Um, but at the end of the day, you want to have it all tied up with their housing finance and there's got to be a deposit. There's yep. got to be some real money on the table. Yeah. Um, so we started off with a 20% deposit now because the chunks are getting bigger. We've reduced that down to a 10% deposit. But people have got to find 50 dollars or 75 dollars or $100,000. So there's... And that's why... Time, time is important. People have got to know that well in advance. They've got to know what the rules are three or four years before that transaction is going to occur.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just on the the decision making styles, did you do any work? I mean, I, did you do any work around behaviours and learning styles and anything like that in preparation, or would you potentially do that again so that you you're on the front foot with that, or?
1: Well, we already have that then.
0: Yeah. So, so our business
1: operates off two profiles. We use um, um, Gallup strengths, and we use um, Colby. So we know in advance who's going to yeah. need lots and lots of information. We also know in advance who's going to form a view very, very quickly that might be completely wrong because they haven't got the information. Then they'll test it, yeah. and you just got to be patient with that. You know, you've got to understand that that's what's going, what's coming at you. Um, but we use those. We use those um, decision-making tools, profiling tools pretty much daily yeah. in, a, in the business. So, so
0: by the time someone becomes a principal, we, we've we got a pretty good idea of what we're getting. Very good. Um, so just to finish us off, what advice do you have for any of our members um, who have businesses that they're looking to develop a succession plan? What should they be thinking about? What should they be putting in place? Soon is probably better than later.
1: So, the first thing um, is to think about those four freedoms: freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationships, freedom of purpose. And if there's anything missing in those four freedoms, and generally it will be time, yeah. um, they need to think about that. And it's that it's that discomfort around, oh gee, I'm working hard, I you know I'm probably not seeing as much of my kids as I would like. Um, is this as good as it gets? If there are any of those sorts of questions being asked or thoughts, um, then that, that is the raw material for change. You know, irritation around something is the raw material for change, and that's that's where you end up with a great vision to say, look, in my ideal world, this is what I would like this to look like. I'm going to scale and sale, or I'm going to build the business up as much as I can, and then I'm going to sell it to a third party, uh, or I'm going to do an internal Transition, internal transitions. I suspect are much harder, much much harder, um, and they just need a lot more time. So take the time, and don't start talking about it with other people in your business until you're absolutely certain that it's going to happen. Yeah, and give them if they if you give them a time frame. I think people understand that time frame might drift out by a year. But don't leave them hanging for three years because they will leave. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you have, you have not fulfilled your part of the bargain. And I think that's such a shame. Um, I reckon a lot of people would need some advice around this. And um, I, I think finding, finding an advisor who's done it before, who can mentor you through the process, I think is really valuable. And just be extraordinarily thorough some of the stuff I see, um, the transactions I see that people younger, the next generation have bought in to smaller businesses off the back of, you know, a beer coaster calculation demonstrates to me that there's super, super high levels of trust in the the business, um, which is great. Um, But I think when people are putting their life savings on the line,
0: there needs to be some thoroughness to it. I think you nailed it earlier when you said most people think about succession from a from a capital perspective and that's really what they're thinking about i think that leadership and the roles limbs of it as well um is really interesting to think about and you know to your point the financial planners are the are the ones who see the clients and maybe the front front of the business and and what the what the public sees but they're not necessarily the engine and the ones that are that are you know, generating the efficiencies and generating the, the administration and the processes that the planners need so that all they can do is focus on the clients and having those kind of roles defined, those, the, the leadership in those roles solid and, and working effectively, I think, um, to your point, is critically important, not just for the initial transactions, but for yeah. the ongoing success of the business and viability of the business.
1: I had a chat the other day, Ben, to a fellow who just rang to shoot the shoot the breeze really and um I was really impressed because he said look I know I need to retire I know I need to have a succession plan and he said I have a number in mind and I've worked all my life for this so I don't I'm not apologizing for the fact that I have a number in mind but it's really really important for me that my clients find a good home mm. and um I, I just think that's the other the other thing that we should be thinking about as practice owners is what about our clients you know what a what a, what does succession actually mean for them because you know pretty much everything that someone has in their 50s um financially is in some way related to the goodwill of those clients over a lifetime and we've got clients that have been with us for 22 23 years i i hate to think what the the um, the cumulative value of the fees they've paid us are. we we have obligations around that. so so when you're making these decisions, make sure the client is in the room figuratively to guide those decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that was one of the biggest struggles I had when I moved away from face-to-face planning was these these clients that I'd spent years working with and and, you know, they were simple people but they you know they trusted me and they knew the decisions we'd made were the right ones for them and making sure they were handed off the right way was was something that that weighed on me a lot as i i transitioned out of face-to-face advice
1: every time um, we, every time every time you meet with them they look you in the eye and they say ben are we going to be okay absolutely and even, even if that question is not asked and verbalized the question is being asked ben are we going to be okay and i think got to be able to give them an answer to say yes you're going to be okay in this transaction too
0: yeah and 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 to be honest i mean i always knew i wasn't a long-term financial planner there were there were other things in my future so at least i could be honest with them all the way through and say i'm here today and we're going to do phenomenal stuff but i've got these support mechanisms around me to um to pass you on to um david i want to thank you for your time and your wisdom and everything you've shared with us today is there anything else you want to finish off letting Uh, members know about it's been been a pleasure thanks david and and if anybody's looking for a, a good business to to have a look at and see what they're doing um i've been blown away by capital partners the the few times i've had the benefit of um Being able to have a look at them through the FPA awards process and and I'd encourage you to have a look at at what they're doing over in Perth as well because it's um it it blew my mind and and I think this succession planning process is just another another key element of what makes your business so great David so um well done and and thank you for joining us today thanks man